Our gospel lesson comes from the last part of Matthew chapter 25. Give your ear to the gospel of our God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, And you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we say when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting Fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick? Or in prison and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them saying. Assuredly I say to you. Inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away. Into everlasting punishment. But the righteous. Into eternal life. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this heavy and yet critical doctrine of hell, help us to be sober minded and open to the truth and give us ears to hear and hearts to obey what you have to say, what you have to teach us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A story is told about a conversation that took place during the previous 
century between a royal princess in England and a minister in the Church of England, a leading minister, a dean of a cathedral. After a worship service at one of England's cathedrals, the princess spoke to the minister of the cathedral, the dean, and she asked the dean this question. Is it true, dean, that there is a place called hell? Is there really a place called hell? And in response to the princess, the dean of the cathedral said, Madame, the scriptures say so. Christian people have always believed so. And the Church of England confesses so. To this answer, the astute princess responded, Then in God's name, why do you not tell us so? And this story highlights an increasing problem in the church. Preachers are not preaching on the doctrine of hell. Hell is not a popular doctrine for obvious reasons. Hell does not create happy thoughts. Hell does not get people to come back to church. Hell does not inspire the way a Hallmark card inspires. Hell does not make God seem kind and loving to some. So preachers avoid preaching on it. In fact, the doctrine of hell is not only being avoided, it's also coming under attack in so-called evangelical circles and churches. Over the last 50 years, a growing number of evangelical, conservative preachers and theologians have forsaken the biblical doctrine of hell in one way or another, undermining some aspect of its teaching, of its truth, of the Bible's teaching on it. So at this point, there's really no shortage of popular articles, academic articles, popular books, academic books and blog posts and sermons that undermine and even mock what the Bible teaches and what the church has always believed and confessed regarding the eternal punishment of those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who do not submit and bow the knee to Jesus in this lifetime. And the modern church's attack on hell is an attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. That's why this is important. That's why we need to make sure that we are maintaining our clarity on this crucial biblical truth. Unless you believe in eternal hell, you cannot know how much Jesus loves you. You cannot appreciate what he accomplished for you, what he did for you in your stead on Calvary. If you deny the reality of hell or the eternality of hell, the everlasting nature of hell, you deny the greatness and the graciousness of the salvation that Jesus purchased for you on the cross. That's really why this is important at bottom. To understand the true nature of 
your salvation, your deliverance from God's wrath and anger and punishment. You must know not only what you have been saved to, but also what you have been saved from. You've been saved unto everlasting life, eternal bliss with God after this life. You've been saved from everlasting death, eternal punishment, eternal destruction, everlasting and conscious separation from God and hell. Those who are trusting and obeying Christ have been saved from this eternal suffering in outer darkness. And I'm preaching on hell not just because I want your minds to be filled with the biblical facts about this doctrine. I'm preaching on hell mainly because I want you to know the depths of your dependence on God, the depths of your sin against God, and the depths of God's love for you. And the reality and the eternality of hell show us these things. I want you to know how serious your sin is. I want you to know how much your sin cost God. And I want you to be aware of how dangerous your sin is. So that you will endeavor to kill it rather than making peace with it. As your preacher, if I'm going to successfully herald the love of Christ, a love which surpasses our understanding, that I must faithfully herald the wrath of God, a wrath which also surpasses our comprehension. Here's how one author put it. Far from being judgmental or selfish, preaching about eternal punishment in order to magnify the grace and mercy of God in Christ crucified and risen is the most loving, compassionate, and God-honoring thing a minister can do. So that's what I'm going to do today. And then in three weeks from now, I'll preach the follow-up, the part two of this two-part sermon series on hell. We'll give a few weeks in between. The reason I'm doing that is for the sake of our small groups, really just want to have one small group discussion on this topic. And we won't have small groups the third week of October. So I'll preach the second sermon then. Um, and on October 21st, unless my wife is in labor. Now, I could have, you'll see on your outline, uh, I put the outline of today's sermon at the top, and then I put the outline of the second sermon at the bottom in gray font. And you can see by just looking at the title or the, the headings there of each one that I could have done them in the reverse order. And for some of you, it might make more sense to preach that second sermon first about what is hell. There are several reasons I decided to do it this way. But one of them is we'll consider a lot about what is hell in this sermon. But I also want us to consider 
and be, have fresh on our minds the significance and the importance of this doctrine as we consider more in depth in the second sermon, the details about the doctrine. One of the ways that Jesus demonstrated his love and his compassion for us, for his disciples, for his people, is that he taught on hell more than any other biblical author. In fact, more than all of the other biblical authors combined. And Jesus didn't pull any punches when he taught on hell. In our gospel lesson from Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of the everlasting fire and the everlasting punishment that belong to the demons and to humans who have rejected God. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, back in chapters 5 and 18, Jesus says that those who give in to sin are in danger of the hell of fire. I'm going to be referring, alluding to, citing a lot of passages in this sermon. It might be best for you to just listen, maybe jot them down if you have a pen, rather than turning to all of them. But he gives warning to those who give in to sin. and says they are in danger of the hell of fire. And that their response should be very serious. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus tells his disciples, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, Jesus believed that hell was a real place that unbelievers will experience in both body and in soul. Hell is a place of both physical and spiritual torment. In Mark 9, verses 43 and 44, Jesus speaks of hell as a place where the fire is never quenched and the maggots never die. The maggots never die because the death and decomposition of hell never ends. The eternal death and the eternal decomposition are spiritual as well as physical in nature. Because remember, Jesus says that everyone will be resurrected at the end and receive new bodies. Some into everlasting life, some into everlasting destruction. So it's physical as well as spiritual. In Matthew 25, 30, Jesus depicts hell as the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The idea here is that hell is a place of unimaginable misery and unhappiness, suffering, Jesus not only spoke about hell more often than everyone else in Scripture combined, he also spoke about the horrors of hell in much more vivid and blood-curdling detail than anyone else in Scripture. And so, why is the reality of hell so important? Why was it so important to Jesus? Why must it be important for us? First, The reality of hell shows us the depths of our dependence on God. Children are not the only ones who are afraid of the dark. 
All of us are at some level. The loneliness and the isolation of darkness make us uneasy. When we find ourselves in a dark place, we long for the comfort of light. It doesn't feel right until we can see light again. My grandpa's property in Dade County has a cave on it. And when I take the kids into that cave, we always take a moment to stop and turn off all of our flashlights so that we experience in the very back of the cave total darkness for just a minute or two. It doesn't take long for that for the discomfort of that total darkness to set in. We long for light. We get fidgety. The kids start asking, can we turn the lights on now? We wonder if we're ever going to see anything again. We were made to be in the presence of light. And one of the images of hell in Scripture is outer darkness. Not just darkness, but the outermost part, the darkest part of the darkness. The outer darkness of hell is utter separation from God's light. The darkness of hell is the result of losing the presence of God. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. But apart from God, there is only darkness. That's all. In Matthew 25, 41, we, we read the ultimate condemnation from the mouth of God. Depart from me. Depart from me. These, these words, the, the worst thing that any person can hear are these words. Because the worst thing that can happen to anyone is to be apart from God. Outside of God's presence. Separated from all of God's light. We were made to be in the presence of His light. We were created to walk in the immediate presence of God. That's what we see Adam and Eve doing in Genesis 2 when they were first created. Now, of course, in one sense, it's impossible to depart from God entirely, right? Because God is everywhere and He's always upholding everything by the word of His power. Even hell cannot exist unless God upholds it. And in some sense, it's in His presence. But the Bible says that sin exiles us from the goodness of God's presence. The presence of God that is in our favor, that gives us light and joy and peace and pleasure forevermore. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have caused him, caused God, to hide his face from you. So that he does not hear. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is to be separated from God, hidden from his face. The life and joy and pleasure that you look for and long for can only be found in the presence of God. 
at his right hand, the psalmist says. Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. You depend on God's presence for everything that is good, for every blessing, for life and joy and eternal pleasures, as the psalmist talks about. God made you so that you will never be able to find life or joy or pleasure apart from his pleasure, apart from his favorable presence in your life. These good gifts, like all good things, they can only be found in the light, in his light. You were made for that light. You need God's light. You depend on God's presence for everything, every single thing that is good. But you see, sin removes you from life and joy and pleasure and power. That only God can give. And hell is the ultimate separation. From these good things. That's why Paul says in our epistle lesson in 2 Thessalonians 1 9. That hell is everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his power. The human soul was made for glorifying God. And enjoying his presence presence forever that's your chief end because it's what you were made to do all true human life flows from god and his presence in this life everyone experiences god's common grace even those who hate god get to enjoy his kindly providence or his common grace as it's called even unbelievers get to share in many of god's good gifts because god has not yet Cast them out of his presence into the outer darkness. Where they were where they will eternally lose their life. Die. But in the life to come. Those who have not trusted in Jesus will be punished with this everlasting destruction away from the life giving presence and power of the Lord. Away from his glory, the glory of his power. And they will realize when it's too late. Just how dependent they were on God for every bit of life and joy and pleasure that they experienced in the first life. Second, the reality of hell shows us the depths of our sin Against God. Hell shows us how serious our sin is. And how dangerous our sin is. A well known Bible scholar. Conservative Bible scholar again. And I'm calling these guys conservative. Because on every other point they are. Except where they undermine hell. A well known conservative Bible scholar. From the 20th century wrote a book. In which he argued that hell is real. People are We'll go there, but it's not eternal. His book is called The Goodness of God. And his argument is that a good God could not send people to hell forever. 
he concluded that those who go to hell will only be there temporarily, and eventually God will annihilate them so that they cease to exist altogether. Now, we'll, we'll talk in more depth about this false teaching in the next sermon. But the, the, the Scripture clearly does not support that. What I want to do this week, though, is consider how this scholar arrived at this error. And the way he got there is very simple and very easy to see and very easy to fall into. He got there by taking sin too lightly. He became so focused on the horrors of hell that he lost sight of the far greater horror of humanity's sin against the holy God. In his book, he wrote the following sentence, the ultimate horror of God's universe is hell. The ultimate horror of God's universe is hell. Is that right? Is that true? No, it's not. What is the ultimate horror of God's universe? It's sin. Our sin, my sin, your sin. Sin against God is far greater, far worse than suffering for your sin against God. Sin is the crime. Hell is simply the punishment. The crime is far worse than the punishment because it is a crime against an infinitely holy God. You think that endless punishment in hell is worse than even one sin, one sin against our holy God. Then you have far too low a view of sin and far too low a view of the holiness, the righteousness, the perfection. The beauty of God. Sin against God is really bad. It's the worst. We fallen humans, though, we will always tend to underestimate the sinfulness of sin, especially ours, our personal sins, but also humanity's sin in general. We will always have a propensity to downplay our sin, even when we are thinking and saying that we take it quite seriously. We think of our sin too often as an accident, a slip-up, a mistake. We tend to view our offenses as not, not all that offensive. But unless we view sin in light of God's holiness, unless we view sin as an egregious offense against the infinitely righteous God of heaven and earth who made us, we will never see sin for the evil and the wickedness That it is. And we will never see our sin as worthy of eternal damnation. And what we need to remember when we think this through. We're trying to understand the justice of God and the mercy of God and the fairness of it all. Only God knows the full extent of the awfulness of our sin against him. He's the only one who can know the fullness of its depths. And he says in his word that our sin is worthy of an endless punishment in fire 
and outer darkness away from his presence. You see, our sin is that bad. Our offense against God's holiness is that serious. The doctrine of everlasting hell impresses upon our hearts and minds the seriousness of our sin against God. So anytime you are tempted to explain away some aspect of hell, you need to realize that at the root of your temptation is a low view of sin combined with a low view of God's holiness. All the, the doctrine of hell also instructs us on the dangers of our sin. Living for yourself, living by your own standard, is the most dangerous thing you can do. Because God may give you what you want. And that's the worst thing for you. In Romans 1, 26 and 28, in two places, Paul says, that God in his wrath against unbelievers gave them up to their vile passions and their debased minds. He gave them up. He gave them over to their sin. This is how God judges wicked people. He gives them up to the deepest desires of their sinful hearts. And when God gives you up to your sinful desires... You are, by definition, under his judgment already. And there's more judgment to come. The natural inclination of every human heart is to go its own way, to make its own path, to create its own set of standards, guidelines. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. You see, that's the inclination of the heart of a sheep, a fallen sheep. The sinful heart desires independence from God. In particular, it desires independence from God's law. The prophet Jeremiah looked around at the rebellious nation of Israel and he concluded in Jeremiah 8, 6. No one relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. None of the sinners around Jeremiah were stopping and asking, what have I done? See, the heart in bondage to sin has no desire to stop and take an honest look at what he has done and where he is headed, on what course he is on. The sinful heart shows no regret for sin. It turns to its own course and plunges itself into a dangerous battle that always leads to death. There's no repentance. A person driven by the Spirit of God, on the other hand, will always be asking himself this question that Jeremiah says that no one was asking. What have I done? What does repentance look like? What does God's law require? How do I make sure I'm not on the path of self-destruction, which is my own course? A person driven by his own heart and mind 
never stops to ask these questions because he has turned on his own course, as Jeremiah puts it. He is going his own way. This is the most dangerous place that any human can put themselves in. When God wants to judge people, he gives them up to the thoughts and the imaginations of their own hearts and minds. And hell is God giving people up to what they have freely chosen in the ultimate sense. Those who want to turn to their own course and go their own way will get what they want in the end. Their sinful desires will lead them to eternal death. Those who want to be independent of God will get what they want in the end. Those who want to have nothing to do with God will get what they want in the end. Those who cannot stand God's glory will get what they want in the end. Those who are not interested in living in the light and the power of God's presence will get what they want in the end as they endure eternal death destruction as life is stripped from them forever. Hell is God banishing people to outer darkness. The outer darkness that they desperately tried to get to all of their lives, even though they would have never put it that way. J.I. Packer writes, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. If the thing you want most is to worship God in the beauty of his holiness, then that is what you will get to do forever. If the thing you want most is to be master of your own fate and captain of your own soul, then God's holiness will forever be a source of agony and terror and shame for you. And you will find yourself fleeing from the presence of God forever. So your desires can be a dangerous thing. Sinful desires are Extremely dangerous to have hanging around. You must not let them linger in your soul. You must not give them a safe haven in your heart. You must identify them and kill them so that they do not drag you off to death. The sinful desires, your sinful desires will take you farther than you thought you would go. They will keep you longer than you intended to stay. And they will cost you more than you wanted to pay. Sinful desires can take you all the way to hell, Jesus says, if you entertain them and love them instead of killing them. And the opposite of killing them is loving them. The opposite of loving them is killing them. James 1, 4 and 15 say, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, sin is dangerous. It's not safe. Its desire is to consume you. 
Therefore, you must slay it continually and mercilessly. If you're harboring a treasured sin, if you're if you're carving out space for evil in your heart and in your mind and in your body, if you're rationalizing wickedness instead of killing it, then you are messing with the fire of hell. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Sinful desires are more dangerous than we think. You cannot afford to give them refuge in your soul. There's no way for you to know where they might take you and how long they might keep you there and how much ultimately it will cost you. We've seen how the reality of hell shows us the depths of our dependence on God and the depths of our sin against God. Finally, the reality of hell shows us the depths of God's love for us. The thing that makes hell so unbearable is that it is a God-forsaken place. Hell is separation from God's presence and favor. Everyone, is, everyone in hell is being forsaken by God. Can you think of anything worse? And that's what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was forsaken by the Father. God the Father abandoned God the Son on the cross. That's why Jesus cries out at about the ninth hour, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the Father forsake the Son? Was that necessary? It was. The, the Son had to endure our punishment, which means he had to be forsaken by God. You and I could never pay for even one of our sins by spending an eternity in hell. That's why it's going to be eternal, because it's never going to get paid off. God could punish you in hell for 900 trillion years. And not one of your smallest sins against God would be atoned for. Our penalty is infinite because it is sin against an infinite God. And yet, after, after God the Son endured his Father's anger and wrath and abandonment for a few hours on the cross, he was able to say at the end of all of that, it is finished. It's been taken care of. The penalty has been paid in full. God's wrath has been satisfied. You see, Jesus endured our infinite penalty. And he did it all in one day. 
including the suffering leading up to it. This means that what Christ felt on the cross was far worse, far more painful, far more intense than all of our eternities in hell put together. Because it actually accomplished something. It actually purchased our salvation, which all of our eternities in hell could not do. The suffering that Christ endured on Good Friday is worth more than all of mankind's eternal suffering in hell combined. Christ's suffering on the cross was infinitely more intense than any mere human could ever endure. He endured intensively what unbelievers will endure extensively. And yet he accomplished more than they will. Unless you come to grips with the terrible doctrine of hell, you cannot even begin to understand the depths of Jesus' love for you and what he did for you on the cross. As one preacher put it, his body was being destroyed in the worst possible way, but that was a flea bite compared to what was happening in his soul. When Jesus cried out that his God had forsaken him, he was experiencing hell itself. Worse than being beaten and nailed to a cross by human hands was being abandoned by his father. Worse than being stricken, smitten, and afflicted by the soldiers was his being stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. The old hymn, one of our hymns, puts it beautifully. Tell me, all who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like this? Friends, through fear, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would intervene to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The stroke that justice gave was the worst stroke of all because it was the stroke of his father's anger and wrath and abandonment. Consider for a moment the relationship that Jesus lost on the cross. If if an acquaintance of yours rejects you, that hurts a little. If a good friend turns his back on you, that hurts a lot. If your husband or your wife forsake you, that's devastating. The longer and deeper and more intimate the relationship, the more painful the separation or abandonment is. The son's relationship with the father was eternal, without beginning. And it is infinitely deeper and more intimate than any human relationship could be. When Jesus was cut off by the father, Jesus went into the depths of hell. And he did all of this voluntarily 
for you. Even though Jesus was and is God, even though he is equal with God, equal to the Father, Philippians 2 says, he did not count his equality with God as something to be grasped and used for his advantage. Instead, he counted your interests as more significant than his own interests. He came to serve you rather than to be served by you, even though he is the king of the universe and the creator of all things, including you. God became man so that he could die for you. And he didn't have to do that. God took on flesh so that he could take up his cross and endure your hell. We undermine what Jesus did on the cross when we undermine the biblical doctrine of hell. So the gospel can be summed up this way. God so loved the world that he poured out all of hell's wrath on himself. So that whoever believes in him shall not perish in hell forever, but shall have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for making clear to us this sobering truth about your judgment against sin and about the reality and eternality of hell. May we take to heart the things in your word and live by them. And especially may we this week and in the coming months and years take our sin against you more seriously. We need your help to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.